back, everyone. This is lecture number 14. We're going to talk about adaptive immunity. Last time, if you can remember, a week ago, we talked about intrinsic and innate defenses. Just to remind you, intrinsic defense is always present in uninfected cells, and, we, and they include defenses like apoptosis, autophagy, RNA silencing, and antiviral proteins. We've also talked about the innate immune system, which is induced by infection, and that leads us to today, the adaptive immune system, which is tailored to the pathogen and which, unlike the other forms of defenses, comprise memory. And just to remind you how we linked the innate and adaptive defenses we have here, virus infection of an epithelial barrier, the cells sense the presence of the virus infection, and that's the innate immune system. The innate immune system is activated and cytokines are produced, including interferons. Uh, these cytokines attract cells of the immune system, such as dendritic cells. The dendritic cells become activated by picking up a combination of cytokines and, and proteins and nucleic acids released from the dead and dying cells. Uh, the dendritic cells then migrate to the lymph nodes where they then present the antigen to T and B cells. And that's our focus for today. For today. What goes on uh, at that point and beyond? And eventually that interaction leads to the production of antibodies and cytotoxic T lymphocytes, which are uh, some of the main effectors of the adaptive immune system. A little bit of terminology before we start. Leukocytes and lymphocytes. What, what are they? Okay, here in this panel, these are all leukocyte, which is a general term for a white blood cell. And this includes lymphocytes, neutrophils, eosinophils, and macrophages, as you can see here. Now, a lymphocyte is a specific subset of leukocytes. This includes T cells and B cells and NK or natural killer cells. Uh, these cells have variable antigen-detecting cell surface receptors. All right, leukocytes and lymphocytes. Now, all the cells within the blood are derived from a common precursor cell, this multipotential hematopoietic stem cell. It is a self-renewing stem cell population. It's in the bone marrow, and it generates two precursors. One is the common myeloid progenitor, which differentiates further into red blood cells and mast cells and myeloblasts. And this latter, in turn, gives rise to basophils, neutrophils, eosinophils, and monocytes. So the other product of the multipotential stem cell is the common lymphoid progenitor. Uh, this differentiates into natural killer cells and then T lymphocytes and B lymphocytes. Right? So this all starts uh, in the bone marrow and uh, many of these cells mature elsewhere. So back to the dendritic cell, what I've labeled innate instruction of adaptive immunity Dendritic cells, of course, patrol all parts of your body, and they're immature until they're activated. And they can be activated by a variety of ways, toll-like receptors, 
that they have on their surfaces and within endosomes can detect virus proteins, for example. They can, they can pick up cytokines. They have receptors for cytokines, which are produced by the infected cell. They can pick up bits of dead and dying cells, apoptotic bodies, right, that are shed from dying cells, infected cells, and they can ask whether there are viral antigens in them. And they have uh, MHC class two receptors. We're going to be talking quite a bit about MHC, major histocompatibility molecules that come in type 1 and 2 or class 1 and 2. And class 2 are primarily on dendritic cells, macrophages, and B lymphocytes. And the class 1 is on nearly all cells in our bodies, and their roles will become evident in, in just a bit. And so basically, after these kinds of stimulation at the site of infection, the dendritic cell will become activated. Its morphology changes. It now displays on its surface the MHC2 molecules with a peptide derived from a protein. Now, these cells are always digesting and displaying peptides, but if they've just come from a virus-infected region, it could be a viral peptide. And this dendritic cell will then present this peptide to T or B cells in the lymph node. Here we have a T cell, a naive T cell, which may recognize the peptide by virtue of a T cell receptor. And the T cell receptors have variable uh, antigen binding sequences in them as well. And we make many, many different kinds of T cell receptors uh, during our lifetimes. And the ones that recognize foreign peptides remain during development we make T cells that recognize our own peptides, but those are gotten rid of because we don't need those self-reactive T cells. And what's left are T cells with T cell receptors that will only recognize a foreign peptides. So if this dendritic cell is presenting a, a viral protein, there will be a T cell somewhere in a lymph node that will recognize it as, as foreign. The T cell then becomes activated. This activation is driven not only by the recognition of the peptide, but some other receptor ligand interactions, as well as cytokines that are produced by uh, the dendritic cell. This uh, presentation of the peptide in the MHC2 to a T cell, as we've just seen, is part of what we call the exogenous antigen presentation pathway. And that's that name tells it all. The, the cells pick up proteins that are outside of them. These proteins can be shed by virus-infected cells that can be within apoptotic bodies that are taken up by endocytosis. But here we have a viral protein taken up by endocytosis. It's then uh, digested because as the, as the endosomes fuse with lysosomes, there are proteases that digest the peptides. Uh, and then at the same time, the MHC molecules are produced in the endoplasmic reticulum. Remember, they're going to be plasma membrane proteins, so they are made in the ER they move through the Golgi, and eventually they end up in these vesicles where the peptides have been produced. The peptides are loaded into the, a groove in the MHC molecule, one peptide per molecule, uh, and then they are transported to the plasma membrane and displayed on the cell surface. So if this is a dendritic cell, that's what's happening inside. the. It doesn't look like a dendritic cell, right? It's square, but Take my word, it could be a dendritic cell or a macrophage, any antigen-presenting cell. And now it will go in the lymph node and present, present this uh, peptide to a, a T cell. 
And if T-cell recognizes it, then we initiate adaptive responses. Now, at every step, of course, of defenses, I've told you about how viruses interfere or counter have countermeasures, and there's no exception here. Human cytomegalovirus, for example, interferes with the transcription of MHC2 genes, so it is dampening the dendritic cell response. So dendritic cells are not going to be making much MHC2, so they won't. So the virus will not be detected as foreign. All right, so that's exogenous presentation. We're going to look in a moment at endogenous presentation, which is what happens in an infected cell, right? Because in an infected cell, the proteins are made within the cell. So we call it endogenous, and it's a different pathway. Now, when a T cell recognizes a peptide in the context of MHC2, right, presented by an, an antigen-presenting cell, this triggers lymphocyte activation and massive cell proliferation. Uh, and here we have a diagram of, of the lymph node um, here. It doesn't, it's not a kidney. This is a lymph node. It has very distinct regions where there are mainly B cells or, or T cells or macrophages and plasma cells. We have afferent lymphatic vesicles. They bring lymph from tissues into the lymph node, and they have vessels that bring it out, efferent vessels. Then we have an artery and a vein. And so lymph from extracellular spaces in tissues carries antigen and antigen-presenting cells into the lymph node. Uh, and so macrophages and dendritic cells will come in here from the tissues. The blood supply enters and leaves also here. And, and these feed a, a small arteries and venules. They have a capillary network within the node. And those capillaries are permeable and they enable mixing of blood cells uh, from those with the site from the site of infection. So when the APCs come in, they they interact with T or B cells, uh, and typically one in ten thousand or one in a hundred thousand B or T cells will recognize a particular foreign antigen. Uh, and then within one or two weeks, you get a five, a thousand to fifty thousand fold amplification in the numbers of cells, and th that causes the lymph node to swell, a process that we call lymphadenopathy. So you know, mostly don't notice this, right? If you get uh, a common cold, an upper respiratory tract infection, the lymph nodes uh, under your chin can swell. You can feel them swollen and you know you have some kind of infection or inflammation. Uh, most of the other lymph nodes throughout the body, which are shown on this person here on the right, by the way, there's an extensive network of lymph nodes and lymph vessels, very close to blood vessels as well. Uh, most of them are deeper, so you don't feel them. Uh, if you got a vaccination in your deltoid muscle, you might feel the lymph nodes swelling in your armpits, for example. But for the most part, you're not going to be uh, feeling them. But if you have an inflammation going on in the neighborhood of a lymph node, you might be able to feel it swelling. And that's proliferation of T cells in response to presentation of a foreign antigen. The immune systems, I should say, are, are all over the place in our bodies. And here are two different components for you to look at. We have the mucosal immune system on the left and the uh, cutaneous or the skin immune system on the right. So here on the left, we have the lumen of the intestine, uh, the mucosal epithelial cells uh, with their basal surface or oriented, of course, on the bottom here. We have M cells or uh, microfold cells. Uh, these are important for transferring antigen from the lumen uh, across the epithelium, 
to collections of, uh, of lymph cells called Peyer's patches. And these antigens can be sampled by antigen-presenting cells to see if they're foreign. They go, these APCs will bring them to a lymph node. And if they're something that's not foreign, there's nothing further happens. But if it's a bacter foreign bacterium, for example, it can initiate uh, an inflammatory response. Uh, in these sub-epithelial tissues, of course, there are also lymph vessels and blood vessels as well. So as I've said before, the, the dendritic cells are always uh, patrolling uh, these regions. Now on the right, the, the cutaneous immune system, this is in your skin, skin-associated lymphoid tissue. By the way, in the gut, we call these lymphoid tissues like the Peyer's patches, gut-associated lymphoid tissue, galt or malt, mucosa-associated lymphoid tissue. We have these all throughout our mucosa. And on the right, we call it the skin-associated uh, lymphoid tissue. Uh, this immune system is composed of keratinocytes and Langerhans cells. Keratinocytes are skin-resident phagocytic cells. They can also secrete a variety of cytokines, as shown here, TNF, IL-1, IL-6. They, they make both MHC class 1 and 2 and can present antigens to... Uh, T and B cells. So again, they can look around for antigens, pick them up, and present them. Longerhand cells are the are migratory uh, dendritic cells. They are the major antigen-presenting cells in the epidermis. Uh, when products of viral infections are, are detected, Longerhand cells secrete uh, type 1 interferons. They mature. They migrate to the uh, local draining lymph node, and there they present peptides uh, to T cells in, in a way that I've just uh, Told you. Our first question is, and is again uh, Socrative.com, and the room number is a virus, which is a property of innate instruction of adaptive immunity. Presentation of viral peptides on MHC1, sorry, 2 to CD4 T cells, endocytosis of viral proteins, activation of DCs by cytokines, sensing by TLRs, all of the above. We have a question here. Now, how does uh, the gut microbiome interact with the GALT malt? Uh, it interacts extensively. Um, it's always sampling to make sure there's nothing that shouldn't be there. And uh, when there is, there, then you have an immune response. But you can imagine that what we have grown up with is, is not recognized as foreign. There's a barrier that's, that exists between the, the gut microbiome and the rest of the body. As well, there's a there's a thin layer that separates the microbiome so that it doesn't invade, and there are defenses that have to be kept in place. Now, when you have um, when you're immunosuppressed, that can be broken down and cause inflammation. And, and the nature of the microbiome is also important. You know, if you take antibiotics and it dis, dis, um, disturbs the balance of microbes, then some can outgrow others, and then you have dysbiosis, which is a problem. Okay, 30 people is, is good. 32 out of 32, 100%. And uh, the, the correct answer is all of the above. So what's a property of innate instruction? So certainly presentation of peptides, right? Uh, that's part of innate instruction because the dendritic cell is an innate immune cell. And endocytosis uh, of viral proteins, that's how the DCs present the peptides, right? Innate instruction of adapted immunity. It's the interaction. Activation of DCs by cytokines, sensing by TLR. So these are all correct, not just A. What was the Peyer's patch? The 
papyrus patch is um, a collection of lymphoid cells just underneath the uh, mucosal epithelium here. It's drawn as a it's a blue circle. It's not really what it looks like, but uh, lymphoid cells here, you have them dispersed uh, throughout the epithelium. We'll see when we talk about HIV AIDS how um, they all go away when you have infection because they're full of lymphocytes that are destroyed by uh, HIV. All right, what are the effectors of the adaptive response? This is a little complicated slide, but let's walk through it. Uh, lymphocytes, you know, B and T cells, they start out, uh, they develop uh, in fetal development, I should say. They're both uh, derived, of course, from hematopoietic stem cells, as we said. The T cells go to the thymus, where they further differentiate. Uh, the B cells uh, go to the bone marrow, where they mature. And, and once they have been checked out, these cells have to be checked out to make sure they're not against self. Uh, they move to lymph nodes, they move to the circulation, and they await an antigen-presenting cell to present them a peptide. So here in the top right, we've got our uh, T cells coming from uh, the bone marrow there. Uh, and then in the thymus, they mature to CD4 and CD8 precursors, T helper and cytotoxic T lymphocyte precursors. We don't show the B cells here, unfortunately. But then let's look at uh, responses. So here we have a dendritic cell, which again is going to present peptides to, to initiate T and B cell activation. And here we have the T cell uh, part of this arm, and we have um, activated, in this case, a T cell by an APC. That T cell is, in this case, a CD4 T cell, uh, it, 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 which is a, another word for it, for a T helper cell. And this these CD4 T helper cells make lots of different cytokines, as you can see by all these dots here. And they can make many different kinds. TH2 cytokines uh, encourage B cell development, which we'll look at in a moment. And Th1 cytokines encourage the development of cytotoxic T lymphocytes. Those are the CD8-positive uh, lymphocytes, the CTLs. We'll talk about those in a moment. They kill virus-infected cells. On the other hand, the helper, uh, when they make C Th2 cytokines, they encourage the production of B cells. Now, B cells are activated by sensing of peptides, just as T cells are, or, or by viral proteins. They have re, uh, receptors on their surface, which are basically a kind of antibody molecule, and they have many, and that's a variable antigen-detecting antibody, of course, and so they can detect many different foreign peptides. Uh, when they do detect a foreign peptide, they differentiate to, to become plasma cells, which are the kind of cells that secrete antibodies. And the antibodies then, of course, will have a role in infection, which we'll look at in a moment. So the Th2 cytokines help this differentiation of B cells into plasma cells. So these CD4 T cells are really important, right? They're, they're responsible for stimulating the cellular and the antibody arm of the immune response. Now, finally on the left here is a diagram of uh, some of the events that occur when um, B cell is activated. So here, here on the top here is a B cell. It has what are called B-cell receptors, which are really just uh, antibodies. And each cell has an antibody that's specific for uh, one kind of uh, peptide antigen. 
And when the, the antigen engages the antibody, that can be either through soluble antigen or by being presented by an antigen-presenting cell. You have a signal transduction pathway. Uh, you have a series of uh, gene transcriptional events activated. That leads to differentiation of the B cell uh, to, to become a plasma cell. This is actually a, a, a Th2CD4 cell, which is making the cytokines that uh, help the B cell differentiate into a plasma cell. So this interaction here, the uh, interaction of the uh, the peptide, which has been transferred in the B cell to MHC2, with the Th2CD4 positive T cell, that activates that CD4 T cell to make the cytokines that are needed for that differentiation. So we have, in the end, antibodies made. We have cytotoxic T lymphocytes. And what we're going to do is explore how these function in virus infections. So let's start with antibodies. These are large molecules uh, that are made up of uh, two kinds of uh, protein chains. They are made up of four in all, right? Two light chains, which are shown in green, and two heavy chains, uh, which are shown in red here. They associate to form uh, this four polypeptide unit. And the top of this unit is called the uh, FAB fragment, uh, and it was so-called many years ago because there is a cleavage site here uh, for a protease called papain. Years ago, people took this protease, which is from papaya, by the way. And, you know, in New York, you used to be able to buy a juice, a juice bars from either papayas or pineapples that would help your digestion, <laughs> the reason being that they have proteases in them. Anyway, it was found to cleave. Uh, the antibody right here into two parts, which are functionally very distinct. We have the antibody binding part, the FAB, and we have the FC part, which uh, binds receptors and confers other functions. And so that's why we call it FAB and, uh, and FC. The top part is the antigen binding part, which is made up of uh, variable regions from both the light uh, and the heavy chain. And, and the bottom of the molecule is more constant and has other functions like complement binding and binding to FC receptors on cells. So that's an antibody, which of course is made by a, a plasma cell, a derivative of a B cell, in response to finding an, a foreign antigen. And here on the right is a graph that shows you general kinetics of uh, antibody production in the blood. So we're looking at weeks on the x-axis, and we are looking at serum antibody titer uh, on the y-axis. So you can see here, it, we've given antigen A here. And then, you know, it depends on the antigen and the particular animal, but um, within days, you can start uh, making antibody, as is shown in red here. So we're given antibody A and red is the antibody. Sorry, we're given antigen A at that point, and red is the anti-A response in the serum. So we have an increasing response in the serum, which eventually peaks in three to four weeks. Again, depends on the antigen. And then uh, slowly declines afterwards. You, you, you never re maintain high levels of any particular antibody in the blood. There's no need to. You know, Presumably, this is a vaccination or, or an infection. You make a burst, and then it goes down to some low level, which you can maintain for years because of memory, as we'll see later. And then... Uh, here at like seven weeks, we're given uh, this animal a mixture of antigen A and a, and a 
antigen B, which is different, you now have a very rapid and much more focused secondary anti-A response. And this response occurs in a few days as opposed to a week or two for the primary response. The reason the primary response is slow, and we don't really go into that much in this course, is because you know to make antibodies, you need to have uh, rearrangement of antibody genes and then somatic hypermutation and affinity maturation to get high affinity antibodies. And that just takes time. But once they're made, they're stored in memory, and then you can respond very quickly. And that secondary A response, of course, would help to prevent uh, disease. It may not prevent infection because it would still take a couple of days to make a lot of antibodies, but it will prevent disease in most cases. And then it will go back down again. At the same time, since we've given antigen B, we'll have a primary anti-B response. So primary and secondary responses. Primary is the first response to an antigen, and secondary is the memory response. A few definitions before we go on. Of course, an antigen is the molecule that induces this immune response. We've mainly talked about proteins, uh, but DNA, RNA, lipid, and polysaccharides can all induce antibodies. Uh, the epitope is the part of the antigen that's bound either by the antibody, as you can see here, or the T-cell receptor would recognize an epitope. Here we have uh, examples of what we, we call linear and conformational epitopes. This is a polypeptide chain in blue. That's an antibody molecule, and that's, of course, the combining site at the tip of the antibody. And the linear epitopes are sequences of amino acids. Um, they're typically short, 12 amino acids or so. And um, the sequence is recognized. There are also conformational epitopes, which have comp contributions from different parts of the protein, as you can see there. But that's an epitope. It's the part that's bound by the antibody or T-cell receptor. Now, a monoclonal antibody is against a single epitope. Now, actually, all uh, antibodies are monoclonal. But we started to use that term when monoclonal technology was developed some time ago and allowed the production of antibodies of single specificities in culture, in cells and culture. And we now understand that our serum, for example, is, contains a mixture of monoclonals, many, many monoclonals against different parts of the protein. Most proteins have multiple epitopes, so you can have many different uh, antibodies produced. So we call that, a, we say that serum is polyclonal in terms of the antibodies that it produces. And so you can make monoclonal antibodies in culture and give them to people. But when you make your own immune response, you're making many different monoclonal antibodies, which gives you in total a polyclonal response. And yes, the, well, these, these single epitopes, the question is, can the epitopes bind both the light and heavy chain? It makes a combining site. This antibody could combine with another protein of the same protein, but... If we're talking about like viruses with repeating surface structures, then both arms of the antibody could combine with uh, surfaces, and you'll see that in a moment. So the antibody response is complicated. There are a number of different kinds of antibodies that we make, and they're shown here with their structures. You know, the major systemic antibody is IgG, which is a single uh, antibody molecule. There's also IgE, which is involved in allergic responses, uh, there's also um, uh, IgD, which is the receptor on the surface of the B cell that I referred to. Uh, and then, of course, we also have IgA, 
which is mucosal antibody. It's, it's very important for protection against mucosal pathogens. It's actually embedded in mucus. And it's different. It's, it has two antibody molecules that are joined together by a secretory protein and a joining chain there. And then we have IgM, five molecules to get uh, joined together with a joining chain. And this is the antibody that we make first. So here on the bottom is the response of a person to immunization with poliovirus. And so here we're looking at polio antibody titer versus days after immunization. And remember that this is going to vary according to the immunogen. But here we see IgG in, yeah, sorry, IgM, that's the dark purple. Uh, that's coming up quickly and first. I mean, there is some IgG made at this first time point, but it's mainly IgM. And Ig, IgM peaks first. IgG continues to rise and will go up for another 60 days or so before going back down. IgM then goes down. Eventually, he's gone in 60 days or so, uh, and IgA rises more slowly. Now, IgM is a good indicator if you've been recently infected. So you see in the case here, a month or two. And we can do diagnostics for looking for both IgM and IgG. IgG, on the other hand, if you have only IgG, your infection is, say, over 60 days old. If you have a mixture of IgG and IgM, you're still in the early days of your infection. Now, why do we have both? IgM is made first. Uh, because the, the antibodies have not yet undergone affinity maturation, which means the genes undergo mutation, and in the lymph node, you have selection for higher affinity antibodies, which just takes time. And in the meanwhile, you just join five lower affinity antibodies together to make an IgM, and because there are five of them, it has high, higher avidity. So it's good enough until we make high affinity IgG, and those high affinity IgG will also lead to good memory. Right, so that's a typical uh, antibody response. Now, we also have secretary, secretory uh, IgA, and here's a diagram of that. There's an epithelial cell. Uh, the lumen is at the top. It could be the gut lumen. It could be the, the respiratory, any, respir any mucosal surface. This is going to happen. We're going to have secretory IgA. So the, here's the basal lateral domain at the bottom, and here's a plasma cell which makes the antibodies. These go all over. They're not just in your circulation and in your lymph nodes. They can go to epithelial surfaces. And this one is secreting IgA as a, as a dimer. It's called polymeric IgA, PIgA. Uh, and then on the basolateral domain of cells, there's a receptor, the PIG receptor, which binds this antibody, takes it into the cell by endocytosis. The vesicles then move across the cell in a process we call transcytosis and eventually fused with the apical domain, and that releases uh, secretory IgA. It's actually stuck on the cell membrane. The, the receptor is cleaved off, and then you have secretory IgA still bound to part of the receptor, where it can then bind viruses or whatever needs to be bound to protect in the mucus that's coating this upper surface. Now, if this happened to be an infected cell, the antibodies could also interfere with uh, different aspects of infection, as shown here. So that's how secretory IgA gets up there. You, you can also have other antibodies. IgG can also move across uh, the epithelial barrier if it's in quite high concentrations. But I, secretory IgA is the main one for protecting at epithelial barriers. We have developed, of course, rapid 
assays for serum antibodies as a way of knowing if someone has been infected. These were developed last year and have matured, and I think now you can get some of these for in-home use, although I think you still need a prescription. But the idea is you could do this yourself, and these come in these plastic um, contraptions, very much like a pregnancy test, except you don't urinate on this. You're, uh, you take some of your blood, you, you pop your skin with a little needle, put a drop of blood onto the contraption, uh, and then you get a couple of lines. So how does this work? So this is by lateral flow, which we talked about already in terms of antigens. I've modified it here to show how you would detect antibodies. So again, it's a absorbent pad on a slide. It's all encased in this plastic case, of course, and you just put your blood at one end. But when you put your blood on one end, so your blood has antibodies in it, you want to see and I've colored them differently according to IgG and IgM, so you could tell where you are in infection. As this material moves across the pad by capillary flow, you can see on this first pad we have gold uh, anti-rabbit IgG conjugate, uh, and then we have gold gold uh, viral antigen conjugate. So, so we have, these are gold beads, these little yellow circles, and they can be conjugated to anti-rabbit IgG or to antigen. Uh, and then as your antibodies move across, uh, they're going to bind to the viral uh, antigen if you have antiviral antibodies. Uh, and eventually you, they move down here where there are three capture, three lines of capture antibodies. These antibodies are stuck on the substrate. So you have anti-human IgM, you have anti-human IgG, and then you have anti-rabbit, right? So if you uh, have IgG or IgM, that's binding the antigen. Those will be picked up at one of those two. And the third is a control line, which will pick up uh, the rabbit antibody to make sure the assay works. So then you have three potential lines. A negative result would just have the control line. You know, if there's no control line, you throw it out and redo it because it didn't work. IgM only would be here, uh, IgG only, and then you would have IgG and IgM. So that's how that works. And I tried one of these last year. A company sent me one an experimental one. And if you want to see how it worked, there's a little more explanation of this uh, in that video. And uh, I was negative, but the, the assay worked. It had a control strip, but I had no antibodies uh, to either one. All right. Among the antibodies that are made in an immune response, some are called neutralizing. Neutralizing, they will block infection. I'll show you how that works in a minute. And these are essential defenses against many virus infections, as you might guess. Uh, these antibodies can neutralize. And again, when I say neutralize, I mean blocking infection. Neutralize viruses in the blood. They can neutralize viruses in the mucosa. In many places, they can prevent uh, virus spread. And here we go. IgA mucosal surfaces can block entry into the respiratory tract. In some cases, all right, so antibodies can inhibit infection, Right. If you give a person a lot of antibodies therapeutically, you could even block infection. But most of the time, they reduce infection. They don't prevent it entirely. But even in some cases, some antibodies are important for recovering uh, from infection. So, you know, classically, we think antibodies prevent infection or reduce it. And as you'll see, T cells help cure it or resolve it. But it's always, it's never black and white, right? It's always gray in biology. I want you to understand that not all antibodies that we make will neutralize virus infection. Many of them just bind to the virus particle. 
because it's an antigen and you make antibodies against all the epitopes. Not all the epitopes can block infection. Why not? Because they're not in the right place. Yet we make those antibodies anyway. Neutralizing one's uh, antibodies are obviously important. And here's an assay for neutralizing antibodies. When someone says they're doing a neutralizing assay for antibodies or a newt, it's a shortening of the term a newt, uh, this is what they're doing. They do a plaque assay or some kind of a cell killing assay. Here we have plaque assays where we have, you know, a dozen plaques or so, just to illustrate this. And on the top, we have first, before we do the plaque assay, which I'm sure you all remember how to do, this is why you have to remember some of the things in virology. Uh, you mix the virus, you mix your 12 PFU with uh, dilutions of antiserum. 1 to 10, 1 to 100, 1 to 1,000, and 1 to 10,000 dilution of the antiserum. This is from a person or an animal that has been infected or vaccinated. And you can see uh, at a low dilution, there are no plaques. You're preventing infection. Same at 1 to 100. Now at 1 to 1,000, you have two plaques. And at 1 to 10,000, you have no more neutralizing activity. So that's what a neutralizing antibody does. It blocks infection. And we're using a plaque assay to measure it. So you would say, the neutralizing titer of this serum is 1 to 100, the last dilution where you get full blocking of infection. On the bottom is the control where you take serum from a person who has never been infected or never vaccinated, and you do the same assay. You see there's no neutralization of infectivity. All right, so that's what I mean by neutralizing antibodies. As I said before, these antibodies can prevent disease. I mean, you could ask if you prevent infection, but in fact, mostly we don't. And in fact, in the COVID-19 vaccines that we're testing, we test to see if they prevent disease first and infection later. So what do you do in this experiment? We have experimental animals looking at paralysis caused by polio. So we first in inject the animals with antibody against polio virus. And then we inject poliovirus into them and see if they get paralyzed or not. And the control here receives no antibody. And you can see all, almost all the animals are paralyzed 100%. And then we have progressively lower dilutions of antiserum being given to these animals. This is the highest dilution. All the animals are paralyzed. If you put lower and lower dilutions, you progressively protect more and more individuals until here the highest antibody titer, all the animals are protected against disease. So antibody can protect against disease, the basis of vaccination. And in fact, for poliovirus, depending on the vaccine given, and we'll, we'll talk about that later, may not protect against infection, but it does prevent disease. And that's what we care about. We don't want kids to get paralyzed. That's why we still vaccinate against polio. And for COVID, we don't want people to die. We don't want them to go into the hospital. And that's what the vaccines do very well. They seem to also decrease shedding, which is also good. Now, we've taken advantage of antibodies in this outbreak in two ways. First, we have tried to use convalescent sera to treat patients. So Treatment or prevention. A treatment means you're sick and you're given antibodies to try and treat you. Prevention means we give them to you prophylactically to prevent infection. But antibodies don't last forever, maybe a couple of months. 
So they're not permanent. Vaccines are much better. So for convalescence here, and we take a, a person who's recovered from COVID-19, we draw blood, we uh, separate out, <clears throat> take out the cells and take the serum. We make sure there's virus neutralizing activity using a neutralization assay. And then we can inject that into people, again, for prophylaxis or therapy. Now, this is called convalescent serum. Hasn't done so well so far. In all the, the trials I have seen, minimal activity. In fact, the NIH just discontinued a clinical trial of convalescent serum because it doesn't have much benefit. The uh, blood can have clotting factors from the donor. It's not purified antibody. The clotting factors can exac exacerbate COVID-19. That's one of the problems with a COVID patient. So this, in my opinion, has not panned out. It's unfortunate because we had convalescent serum available you know, last year, and but it hasn't worked. On the other hand, we a number of companies have made monoclonal antibodies. That is an antibody against a specific epitope of the spike of SARS-CoV-2. These, these are the Lilly products, and these are two different monoclonals. They're against two distinct epitopes, bamlanivimab and etesivimab. The monoclonal therapies end in MAB. Makes sense. And these are injected intravenously. Initially, they were only given to very sick people in the hospital. And as I've told you before, I think, or, and I will certainly told, tell you next time, if you're in a hospital, you no longer have a virus problem. You have an immune response problem. So antibodies are really of little use. Now they're trying to give these to people earlier, and they seem to have some benefit early on. The problem is they need to be given IV. They don't last forever, and they're really expensive. Now, when we talk about antibodies that are neutralizing, the sites they bind on the protein, the epitopes, we call neutralization antigenic sites because they induce neutralizing antibodies. There are antigenic sites in general where antibodies bind and some of them may be neutralizing and others may not, but the ones that neutralize are the ones that I'm talking about in this slide. Neutralization antigenic sites. Please remember that some antibodies bind but do not neutralize. On two different viruses are illustrations of where antibodies bind. First on the left, poliovirus, that's the structure of polio. Uh, you can see the five-fold and the three-fold and the two-fold axes of symmetry. So here's one five-fold. And in white are the anti neutralization antigenic sites. So you can see there are a series of them around the five-fold axis, around the three-fold axis as well. They're limited numbers. And those white areas are where neutralizing monoclonal antibodies will bind. So you can see the one around the five-fold axis is repeated five times, and that makes perfect sense, right? Because there are five copies of VP1 or any whatever the structural protein is around the five-fold axis. All right, so on a virus, an envelope virus that has spikes, like influenza virus, uh, influenza virus has a, two different spikes in its envelope, the hemagglutinin and the neuraminidase, and this is a structure of the hemagglutinin, which we've shown before. It's a trimer. This is the trimer structure here. The head is the part that binds receptor. The bottom is inserted into the membrane. And these colored areas are neutralization antigenic sites on the HA 
of influenza virus. Each of these colored areas is the target of a single monoclonal antibody. In fact, these are the names of the monoclonals that have been made in the lab or isolated from patients. You can now isolate single B cells from patients and take the antibodies that they make and, and work on them in the laboratory. So those are the neutralization antigenic sites of uh, influenza virus. And we'll come back to a discussion of them later on. This is where antibodies bind on the poliovirus particle. So I showed you in this slide the antigenic sites on the particle. These are the peptides, the amino acids, and the virus proteins that bind the monoclonal. And there was one repeated around the five-fold axis. So now I'm showing you the antibodies bound to that neutralization antigenic site. So the virus, again, is in green and blue and red, and the antibody is now colored purple. And you can see one, two, three, four, five antibodies binding around each five-fold axis of symmetry. Each of them is binding that neutralization antigenic site. And so presumably... When these antibodies are bound to the particle, that blocks infection. All right, a couple of questions. Why is intravenous delivery of MABs bad? Well, you can't do it in a doctor's office. You can't do it at home. You need to go to a, a, a facility. Previously, it was a hospital. So if you, if you limit it to hospitals, you're limiting it to people who are really sick, and that's failure guaranteed. We are now making infusion centers where you can give it to people, but you know, they're not going to pop up overnight. Here are some structures of the spike of SARS-CoV-2 bound to a, a particular neutralizing monoclonal antibody. Remember, the spike is embedded in the viral membrane. It's the molecule that binds ACE2, the receptor. Here's the three-dimensional structure of spike shown in gray. It's a trimer. Receptor binding domain of spike is shown in red. Uh, that is the part of spike that binds ACE2. And here it is shown complexed with an antibody. You can see in green the, the, the light and the heavy chains of the variable region, which are the parts that bind the antigen. And uh, that binding will, of course, prevent attachment, which is one mechanism of neutralization. Here's a different view. These RBDs can be up or down uh, in this first panel. One of the, one of the two are down. Uh, and the antibodies only bind in the up configuration. And that's how the, the, the uh, spike would bind to the receptor. And then on the top here, you can see three antibody molecules bound to uh, RBD, completely occluding uh, attachment. So it moved very quickly in this field uh, starting from not too long ago. Neutralizing antibodies, how do they work? And right away, I need to tell you, contrary to what you may hear or read in the press, they do not all work by blocking binding to receptors. There are on this slide five different ways that neutralizing antibodies can block infection. But the only one you'll ever hear of is number one, blocking attachment. Because to most people that sounds like it makes sense. Here we have antibodies to a rhinovirus. Uh, they're bound on the particle to the part that attaches to the receptor and they will block attachment just like the antibodies I showed you to the SARS-CoV-2 spike block attachment. However, there are other ways that antibodies can block infection. They can block endocytosis. They can even block uncoding, so they don't prevent attachment. But they somehow change the particles so that either endocytosis or uncoding is blocked. Some can cause the particles to aggregate, so they never attach in the first place. And some actually can neutralize after reproduction begins. 
And the in this case, the antibodies are taken up along with the particle. They get in the cytoplasm, and they can interact with structural intermediates and block them, say, from assembling. So many ways that antibodies can work. They can even work in a way that doesn't even involve binding uh, to virus particles. And that's a process called antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity. How does that work? So here we have a virus-infected cell, and if this is a enveloped virus, it's going to be having spike glycoproteins inserted in the plasma membrane. Re remember, those eventually will be sites of budding. If there are antibodies being made, those antibodies can bind to these glycoproteins. At least a subset of them will, right? And then along comes an NK cell, a natural killer cell, which has FC receptors on its surface. The FC is the bottom part of the antibody molecule. So uh, the, F, the NK cell will bind to these antibodies that are in turn bound to spikes on the cell surface, the infected cell surface. The NK cell will then kill that infected cell. It will release molecules uh, that induce apoptosis, and that cell is dead. So those antibodies are the link between the NK cell and the infected cell. They're what tells the NK cell that this is infected. So antibodies don't just bind virus particles to prevent infection. As with every other part of the immune response, viruses uh, encode ways to antagonize it. Here are two mechanisms I want to tell you about. We'll, we'll look at more when we talk about uh, evolution. On the left is one epitomized by rhinovirus. Rhinovirus, there are over a hundred different serotypes of rhinovirus. What is a serotype? Serotype is an antigenically distinct form of a virus such that if I'm infected with, say, rhinovirus serotype 1, I make antibodies against serotype 1, but they don't protect me from serotype 2. That's the definition of a serotype. So there are over 100 rhinovirus serotypes, which explains why you can get a common cold caused by these viruses every year, because you'll never encounter all hundreds in your lifetime. So that's a form of evasion of antibody. Just make a lot of serotypes and that gets around it. Now, it, it's not very common to find viruses with so many serotypes. It may be that it's not so easy to do. On the right, we have an example of what we call antigenic variation. And this is epitomized by influenza virus hemagglutinin, where, remember, this is the HA protein I showed you before. These are the neutralization antigenic sites. Uh, the sites on the top vary from year to year. One amino acid change is sometimes enough to reduce the neutralizing activity of convalescent serum. And that's why we, can, we often change the flu vaccine from year to year to accommodate this antigenic variation. All right, so not multiple serotypes, but simply the virus changes from year to year. The amino acid sequence of these epitopes, these neutralization antigenic sites, and that allows the virus to be more resistant to antibodies, and it makes us change the vaccine. And of course, this is apparently what SARS-CoV-2 is doing now. And we didn't realize that coronaviruses could do antigenic variation, 
And we'll talk more about this when we talk about vaccines. But this is not common. For example, we've been using the same polio vaccine for 50 years. It's never changed antigenically. We've been using the same measles vaccine since the 1960s. It doesn't change antigenically. So some viruses cannot change antigenically. And some, like influenza, HIV, and now coronaviruses can. Our next question is, which statement about antiviral antibodies is incorrect? A, they're important for protection against viral infections. B, they only neutralize virus infectivity. C, they may block virus attachment to cells. D, they can be found at mucosal surfaces. Uh, e, IgM is the first to appear, then IgG. So, you know, this first one, you could substitute uh, against viral disease, okay? Since I made made it clear that they are protecting against disease and not always infection. So A would be they're important for protection against viral disease. Could I explain how antigenic variation is different from multiple serotypes? Because only one is circulating at any given time. So flu HA changes, and then that changed flu predominates. Right now, there are over 100 serotypes of rhinoviruses all circulating at the same time. So that's the difference, whether all of them are around at the same time or whether they change from year to year. Thank you. 95%, they only neutralize virus infectivity. Exactly. I, I kind of made an, a point of that, right? <laughs> um they're important for protection against viral disease. They are. They may block attachment. Yes, they can be found at mucosal surfaces. Correct. Uh, IgM is the first to appear. Then I, yeah, all that is right. So the only wrong one is um, is B. You know, what, what's the alternative? It's the NK cells, right? They're lysing-infected cells. Someone asked, will antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity allow viruses to exit the host cell faster? Probably not, because remember, an envelope virus, which is what's going on there with ADCC, they have to bud to get out of the cell. Now, they could bud at the plasma membrane, or I suppose if they bud intracellularly, then it could help them to, to be released sooner, yes. But it's going to be a trade-off between sooner versus more particles, right? All right, let's look at cell-mediated immunity. It got carried away there with antibodies. we got to give this fair shake. This is... Uh, essential for clearing most infections. Typically, it's not thought to prevent them, but they might help preventing. And what happens is the cytotoxic T lymphocyte, the CD8-positive T cell, and the target cells, they form this synapse. The target cell is lysed, and it dies. Viruses encode plenty of countermeasures. Now, a key to this is the endogenous antigen presentation pathway. Contrast to exogenous, this is involving MHC1. So this will work in every cell in your body. So that allows infected cells to be detected. So what happens here? We have an infected cell. This is now a virus-infected cell. We're making proteins in the cell, the viral proteins. These are processed by the proteasome. It's a protease that processes many proteins, including self, and, and puts them through this pathway. The peptides made are imported into the ER by a transporter, TAP transporter associated with antigen processing. Peptides in the ER are loaded onto MHC1. MHC1 is transported to the surface. We're constantly doing this 
to make sure there's no foreign proteins in our cell. And, you know, it even happens in uninfected cells and the peptides are not recognized as foreign. Now, once the peptide is in MHC1 on the surface, and by the way, here's the actual three-dimensional structure of the peptide binding groove of MHC1. We're looking down at the top. The blue is the peptide and MHC1 makes, it's like a hot dog in a bun. This is the MHC in green and the peptide is in blue. Uh, and then, of course, a T cell will come along, and if this is a uh, foreign peptide, the cell will, will die. It's a cytotoxic T lymphocyte, which will recognize that as, as foreign. Now, viruses encode antagonists. They actually encode inhibitors of the proteasome. They encode inhibitors of the transporter. They encode inhibitors of the transcription of MHC genes, so they can't even get into the uh, ER. They uh, they can even uh, inhibit um, loading of the peptide. And in some cases, uh, inhibitors actually downregulate MHC1 and degrade it, so there's no more on the cell surface. And mostly the herpes viruses that cause persistent infections do this. All right, so that's endogenous antigen presentation. And just listed here are some ways that viruses counter MHC1 and the viral protein. Just to show you, some inhibit MHC1 synthesis, some inhibit TAP synthesis or function, and some interfere with MHC1 transport. They cause retention in the ER, even dislocation to the cytoplasm so it never gets to the plasma membrane, and others downregulate by causing endocytosis from the surface. So MHC display is very powerful, and viruses don't exist unless, unless they get around it. How does the lysis work? So again, the CTL is recognizing S4 in this peptide in the virus-infected one in MHC1. Uh, when that happens, the CTL releases a series of products uh, that cause apoptosis. Uh, those include perforin, which is the purple protein here. Perforin, as the name implies, makes a pore in the infected cell membrane. And then a second protein, granzyme B, the red dots made by CTLs uh, go through the pore into the cytosol and they trigger apoptosis. It's presenting an apoptosis-inducing protein to the cell and it's making a pathway for it to go in. Now, the, the, the um, establishment of a pore alone, the perforin pore, also causes contents of the cytosol to leak out. So these are called lytic pores. It's basically an entryway. And uh, those two combined activities cause the cell to die. And this is a way to get rid of virus-infected cells. And so we typically imagine this helps in recovery because if you have a lot of infected cells, as I said, antibody is not going to get rid of that. So here's an experiment where we look at the role of antibody versus cellular immunity in protecting animals against monkeypox infection. So uh, we are vaccinating uh, these uh, individuals on day zero immune manipulate. And here in this line, nothing is done to them. 22 days after vaccination, you see there's nice neutralizing antibody in the blood. We infect them with monkeypox. None of the animals die. If we deplete B cells, we have low antibody titers on day 22, and three of the four animals die. So antibody is important in preventing death. If we deplete CD8 cells, antibody titers are fine. See, these, of course, are the precursor to CTLs, not CD4s. That would be a problem because they're important for antibody production. And here, um, no fatality, plenty of antibody. So in this case, antibody protects against disease. You can imagine manipulating this experiment in many ways to answer, for example, 
Does it interfere with um, infection, not just disease? Now, for some infections, there's a, there's a balance between CTL and antibody response. It's not. It's never black and white. Sometimes it, CTL is more important. Sometimes antibody is more important. How do you determine the balance? It starts in the lymph nodes where the sentinels and the B and T cells start to have a chat. And in particular, it's based on the cytokines and the peptides that are exchanged. These T helpers play an important role in that. Remember, the T helpers are contacting the sentinels. They're looking at the peptides that are presented. So the TH may contact in the lymph nodes. And then they produce cytokines, and the nature of those cytokines, together with the peptides that are being sensed, can cause differentiation into either Th1 or Th2 cells. Now remember, Th1 cells are the ones that favor the production of cytotoxic T lymphocytes. And Th2 cells are the ones that favor the production of antibodies. So here we have in the left a CD4 T cell that, depending on what kinds of cytokines it is producing, can cause... Um, differentiation to um, Th1 or Th2 or even other kinds of uh, T helper cells that are involved in tumor immunity or uh, immunosuppression and so forth. Here, IL-4 favors the production of antibody, IL-12 uh, the production of CTLs. And here on the right is an example of an APC uh, which is detecting a particular virus and is producing IL-12 uh, which in the lymph node will cause differentiation to TH1, TH1 cells, which are the ones that are going to lyse virus-infected cells. So the balance between antibody and CTL is determined by these TH cells and the cytokines that they produce. For some infections, CTLs are more important for protection than antibody. How is the CTL antibody balance determined? By toll-like receptors, by intrinsic defenses, by autophagy of infected cells, by the mix of peptides and cytokines presented by DCs, depends on whether the capsid is icosahedral or helical. Someone asked, does immunotherapy used in oncology have a role in treating infection? Absolutely. And, you know, one of the aspects there is, is um, dealing with T-cell exhaustion, and for sure that's an issue in some virus infections. By the mix of peptides and cytokines, most of you got that right. That's it. I mean, toll-like receptors are involved, but they don't alone determine the balance, nor does intrinsic defenses or autophagy or... I'm glad no one picked E. That's like a joke. That's a nerdy joke, I suppose. No, no one outside of this class would laugh at it, right? These adaptive responses that we talked about today, uh, both B and T cells provide memory. If you are infected, as I said earlier, by the same virus, the response is going to be rapid, more rapid and specific and high affinity. You don't have to go through the whole maturation process. And this is unique to adaptive responses. Innate responses don't have memory. And memory, of course, is the basis for vaccination. You get vaccinated once or twice, and that should be it. Unless, of course, the virus does antigenic variation. All this is out the window. The fact that infection provides memory was figured out by an epidemiologist who studied measles on the Faroe Islands, which are here uh, between Iceland and Scotland. In the 1700s and 1800s, not many people went there. You couldn't fly. There were no planes. You had to go on a boat. There was an outbreak of measles in 1781. And for the next 65 years, no measles on the island. 
1846, another outbreak, probably someone brought it on a ship. Nobody who who was left after 1781 epidemic were infected. They all had memory. And memory lasts a long time, and it's maintained without re-exposure to virus. There was no measles in the meantime to, to maintain. You don't need the virus to maintain memory. And so, again, I show you this slide I showed earlier. The first infection, you have a slow, a slowly developing immune response, which eventually wanes. But in those intervening years, even though you have a low level of antibody or T cells, you have memory cells that can be, respond very quickly upon reinfection. So that's memory. And this can prevent disease. It's comprising both B and T cells. We have memory B cells in the spleen and lymph nodes. They do not produce antibodies unless they encounter antigens. So the, the B cells have gone through all of the rearrangement in somatic hypermutation, and then all that is stored in the memory B cell. We also have long-lived plasma cells that are in the bone marrow. And again, they do not uh, begin to make antibody unless they encounter antigen. We also have memory T cells. So both arms of this adaptive response uh, generate memory. We have all kinds of memory T cells. Here's uh, an infection course we're looking at the population size of the T cells uh, with time post-infection. And you see, you start with a naive T cell, which of course is then stimulated by an antigen-presenting cell. It differentiates into different kinds of T cells. You see effector T cells. Uh, those are the ones that do things like make cytokines or kill infected cells. Uh, and then as time goes on, the, n the number of effectors go down. And they're replaced uh, by different kinds of memory cells, which also, which also proliferate uh, early in infection, as you can see by the colors. We have effector memory cells, TEMs. Those are the, the blue ones there. Uh, those move around in your circulation. We have central memory T cells, TCMs, which are mainly in lymphoid organs. Those are the green ones. And then we have resident memory T cells, TRMs, so if you have a lung infection with influenza virus, they tend to stay in the lung and they're there for the next time uh, that you get influenza virus there. And again, these will be uh, memory cells that can either make cytokines or become CTLs in response to re-encountering uh, the antigen. Everything we've talked about in these two sessions talking about immune defenses shows how inflammation provides synergy between the different arms of the immune system, the innate arm and the adaptive arm. And to summarize that, you know, we have an infection of a, an epithelial sheet. The cells sense infection. The innate immune system senses infection, produces cytokines. Those cytokines, besides pulling in dendritic cells, which then will present antigens in the lymph node, recruit various kinds of immune cells, including neutrophils. The T cells will eventually come uh, to this area after they, they leave the lymph node. And the infiltration, of course, causes inflammation. The swelling, the fluid uh, rise, the, uh, the infiltration of cells, the pain, the heat, the redness, and so forth. A reflection of inflammation, uh, that reflects the synergy of the innate uh, and the adaptive systems. All of this will come together next time when we talk about how viruses make disease. We needed to understand immune responses first because as you'll see, for many viruses, 
the disease is largely a result of immune responses, not actually virus reproduction. <laughs>